Uh, we just want to issue a trigger warning for the following content. We are going to be talking about heavy subjects such as suicide, overdose, um, and just heavy emotional things. So if you are struggling with the same thoughts and you think you will be impacted greatly, then don't listen to this podcast. We are also not offering therapy or advice to anyone from this podcast. And if you do need help or you're having suicidal thoughts, please call 208-403-0135 or go to eastidahotherapy.com to get some real help and we'll do a free one-hour consultation at the practice. If this is a medical emergency, please call 911 or go to the emergency room right now. Welcome to What We Don't Talk About with Chris and Kara. My name is Kara. I am a student studying social work, and I want to go on to get a master's degree and become a licensed clinical social worker. And I'm Christopher Walton, and I am a licensed clinical social worker. I am the author of the book, Navigating Your Mind, Achieving a Life of Peace, Joy, and Happiness. I am also a professional speaker. And today we are doing a podcast and then we're going to be doing several podcasts over the course of the next well, while anyway, yep. <laughs> hopefully for a long time. And we, um, uh, I am, have a practice here in Southeast Idaho. Uh, and Reed Haight is also an LPC and both he and I are in private practice, um, in this region. And we also have a, an office in Rexburg. So if you are looking for mental health therapy or help for your family with, uh, defined adolescents or kids who are really struggling with uh, anger, anxiety, depression, suicidality, self-harm, behavior, uh, addictions, eating disorders, and the like. Uh, we can help families out to be able to uh, work on those issues. We also see a lot of adults in our practice. Uh, I would mm-hmm. say probably 80% of my practice right now are adults over the age of um, probably 20. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I still see quite a few teenagers and I do have a couple of, well, just one uh, child right now who's 10. So wow. kind of the gamut yeah. of uh, seeing clients. So anyway, we're here. Uh, if you've ever thought about getting into therapy, now's a good time to do it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's always a good time to get into therapy. So the phone number is 208-403-0135 or go to our website at eastidahotherapy.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to talk about my favorite topic, and that is <laughs> good <laughs> um, emotional constipation. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Emotional constipation. So um, essentially what that, uh, where, well, let me back up. Where that came from, what, back in 1993, I just got started with my career after finishing school at the University of Texas mm-hmm. at Arlington, and I had opportunity to work at a hospital um, uh, called Cook Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth. And I worked in the emergency room part-time, and then I also worked in inpatient psychiatry. So when the ER uh, was busy with psych people, I'd go down and do psych evaluations. And then um, I'd opportunity to work with people who were, you know, I saw there or whatever. And there was one day, um, uh, it was one of those full, noon, full moon nights, uh, where a young man came in, doubled over on a gurney, um, brought in by paramedics. And, um, and when we see a kid who's doubled over and they're not bleeding or something like that, 
it was an automatic, my mind, assumption that overdose had taken right. place. And then, so they took him back to the ER, um, and the docs were trying to get an assessment, find out what was going on with him. A few mo- moments later, I hear this man coming in, swearing and cussing and being very loud mm-hmm. and angry. And, you know, I can't believe we're here again. What's wrong with that blanky blank kid? And <laughs> that kind of thing. And we have right behind him is a mom who's crying and, and very emotionally and upset. Uh I introduced myself and got set them down and we sat in a room and we talked about what was going on. And this is a young man that was 17 years old. Um, and he had tried to commit suicide on two other occasions. Wow. Uh, one was just by cutting himself, uh, and doing self mutilation. That w- and that was an attempt at suicide because sometimes self, most of the time I would say self mutilation is not a suicidal attempt. Right, but for him, he it thought was. it was going to be a suicide attempt because okay. he was cutting up on his neck. Oh, okay. And really wow. trying to end his life in a very dramatic way. Um, so he, that was his first emergency room, uh, and they searched him up and sent him on his way. And that when he was about fourteen, mm-hmm. and then when he was sixteen, uh, he had tried again. Uh, with an overdose, and that one failed. And this time, uh, he he uh, knew how to do it, and so he did it uh, as best he could. And so when he came in, uh, they uh, doctors took him back to the ER. They pumped his stomach. They gave him charcoal, uh, which basically lines the esophagus in his stomach that creates uh, the body to reject the medication, so it stops mm-hmm. absorbing into the bloodstream. And then, um, uh, so he vomited some more. And, they got him charcoaled up, and then he he vomited, and and it was we were close enough uh, just based on the proximity where the parents were, and they overheard mm-hmm. some of that stuff, and the mom even got more upset because she didn't know what was happening, and the doctors wouldn't allow her to go in there uh, for all of that as they're doing their assessment. Why is that? So they just want to separate them from the parents to ask better questions in case there's abuse in the home, or just separate so she's not freaking out because of what's happening or why do they separate parents they separate because uh they need to assess without having the emotional hysterical reactions of the parents in addition to really doing an evaluation mm-hmm. where they're looking for gunshot wounds they're looking for right. needle marks they're looking for you know whatever uh, could have uh, been a situation that put that boy in that in, in that place so we they have to take their clothes off and right. you know there's it's pretty uh, extensive and there's several nurses and doctors in there to assess and make make sure they're coming up with the proper diagnosis right. so, so yeah so that's why they separate that okay so it's really about the physical and emotional safety of the child that's like the Absolutely. first priority yeah okay yeah. that's and important to, okay thank you and to be able to get the um the proper diagnosis is yeah. key. so uh with so this boy was um and while he was in the emergency room i was talking with mom and dad and mm-hmm. the I come to find out that dad is a pastor and he had um, a large congregation in uh, the Fort Worth area. And so he um, was very angry with this boy for uh, doing that again and taking him away from his congregation and his obligations. And Mm. the mom was very quiet and really kind of mousy and didn't have any power, didn't know how to stand up for herself and didn't know what to say. And so she just apologized over and over and over. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And that's all she would say. And and there wasn't really a communication. Mm-hmm. Um, this boy fell into a coma. And when he woke up two weeks oh later, he and I started talking. 
uh, and I was and his uh, fictitious name is Nick, and I actually write about Nick in my book. And um, and the name in the book is Nick. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, the name cool. of the book is Nick. Yeah. Buy the book on navigatingyourmind.com. That's right. <laughs> yeah, navigatingyourmind.com. So, uh, so when when Nick and I were talking, he was really explaining that he really tried to be good enough for his dad. He was a 4.0 student. He was all-star baseball, basketball, football. He was a participating in, at church all the time, and he was a youth leader, you know, with what uh, being, a, um, uh, being within his congregation. And then he also had a girlfriend that he really liked a lot who was a part of the church, and, and he was just a good kid. You know, he wasn't into drugs, sexually acting out. Mm-hmm. He was uh, following all of the church rules. Um, but there was, he, he said to me, no matter what I do, I'm never enough. Um, and, and so I said, well, can you describe that with me a little bit more? And he said to me, well, ultimately where I'm at is I have emotional constipation. Mm-hmm. And so, and I said, well, tell me what that means. And so what I'm about to tell you is essentially what he told me. And so I see this as Nick's legacy. And the legacy um, is to be able to help other people to connect to why they are where they are mm-hmm. um, and to be able to come up with some solutions. Mm-hmm. And so he talked to me about how life is really lost. Uh, all of the things that he had done was never enough. He was never adequate for what his dad expected. His mom was fine with him. Uh, he had a younger sister that was did all the same stuff, and she was a cheerleader, and she was bright and beautiful and capable. And she too felt shredded that she was never going to be good enough mm-hmm. for what dad expected. So, And do you know what led them to believe that he thought they weren't enough? Was he verbal about the fact that they were not enough to him? Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he would be um, angry with them about school and really putting a lot of pressure on school, pressure okay. in sports, pressure at church. And you know, I'm sure he didn't give much validation or like, I'm proud of you. Great job. Was that another Not problem? a lot of that. Yeah. Just okay. a lot of demands and control. Yeah. Okay. Um, and mom just was very, you know, mousy and right. codependent enabling. Uh, and so he just felt like there was no place for him to go. Mm-hmm. So when he would really try, try and communicate to his parents is that he felt like that he was in a washing machine. Mom would enable, dad would control, mom would enable, dad would control. And so that's another one of those legacies that I talk about the washing machine effect that parents sometimes create with their kids. And that is this power control enabling. So parents will overcompensate for how the other parent is uh, performing Mm -hmm. with the kid. And then the kid oftentimes feels lost. And so that we can talk about that in another podcast. But that washing machine effect is a big deal Mm -hmm. with a a low sense of self and not believing uh, the one is ever adequate enough or what the expectations and demands are of those two outside sources. Um, Yeah, when you talk about outside sources. Um, So with that... He uh, was talking to me about his uh, a, a lot of um, fear of mm-hmm. relationships, so and not feeling safe in relationships and not having trust. Mm-hmm. So no matter what he did to try and perform and be what other people expected him to be, you know, with that feelings of inadequacy and beliefs of inadequacy, is that there was just fear of relationships. He never felt like he could be close to anybody. He had all of these people. All these people would pa- praise him. The girl, a friend, is congregation school whatever 
And no matter what, he just felt like he was never enough. So fear of relationships, not feeling safe in relationships, and uh, being afraid of relationships. So in therapy, we talk about this frequently. What are you afraid of? Where do you not feel safe? Okay. Mm -hmm. And where do you not trust? So fear, trust, and safety create disconnection. Mm-hmm. And so people were walking around, and he ta- described this. Uh, he would walk around and do all these things, but he always was alone. Mm-hmm. He was lonely and never alone. Uh, so a lot of people running their lives like that. They're lonely and never alone, living in a place of disconnection. Uh, and other people are lonely and always alone. And so there's these kind of these two pieces, and those pieces really create a negative chatterbox that's firing off inside of mm-hmm. oneself on uh, really creating lots of feelings of inadequacy. So no, right. no matter what people do, they're never going to be enough and they're not going to be loved and they're going to be disconnected uh, because of trauma. A lot of times it comes yeah. down to child abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, religious abuse. Um, emotional abuse. Emotional mm-hmm. abuse, yeah. And, and other places where they're disconnected when they were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter what they do to try and have that relationship and that connection, oftentimes they just feel like they're totally alone. And they feel like they're an alien and that there's something inherently wrong with them. Um, And that creates more beliefs where people just feel like they're completely inadequate and worthless. Mm -hmm. So so the fear, trust, and safety are really significant um, psychological events that are taking place inside of people. Um, And they're hiding from that. They don't want anybody to see that because that vulnerability of that authenticity is terrifying because if they take the risk to be able to allow someone to see that part, mm-hmm. they run the position of being rejected, rejected. and abandoned. Right. So this is this is a complication. So it's better to be alone than it is to be hurt. And I, I that's just a fact. It's better to be emotionally alone. It's better to be physically alone. It's better to be whatever alone than it is to take the risk to be hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that becomes a mindset within inside of self. And that's what I call disconnection. So people will present what other people want to see, but they feel like they're living in a whole world that no one really knows about. Mm-hmm. And in that world is uh, a really a sad and hurt person. Yeah. So there's uh, the internally inside itself is the sadness and hurt of that disconnection of not ever being adequate or being enough. And that is oftentimes uh, followed up by not um, a lot of unresolved grief, mm-hmm. uh, beliefs and of, of inadequacy with rejection. So no matter what I do, I'm never going to be enough. And that uh, with rejection comes feelings of abandonment. You know, and I've known kids who felt uh, completely abandoned their whole lives. And no matter what they did to try and have a relationship connection to their parents, their parents never gave them any attention. Mm-hmm. Or their parents weren't necessarily there. Or their parents didn't know how to connect with them. Mm-hmm. A lot of parents, they didn't get connection from their parents. So it's not like they're doing it wrong. They're doing it the way they know how. Right. And they don't think it's necessary, the connection, because they didn't have it. So why? Yeah. Know, well, they're drawing, whatever. we're drawing from our past. Right. You know, we're trying to figure out things from our past. We draw. And if there's nothing there in our past on how to have connection, guess what? You get what we got. Right. So it's not a matter of parents being bad. They're doing the best they know how to do, but they're, it's not necessarily what a kid needs. Mm-hmm. So with those feelings of abandonment rejection comes a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And that mm-hmm. is what people believe. I did something wrong. What did I do that is wrong that created this outcome? Mm-hmm. And then they go back with the negative chatterboxes of shame. I'm inadequate. I'm pathetic. I'm ridiculous. There's something inherently wrong with me. Mm-hmm. What's, what is this thing with me? Everybody else is okay, but I'm not okay. And so with those, the feelings of guilt and the shame uh, comes a lot of frustration. And that right. frustration's expressed all over the place. Mm-hmm. And then after that comes a lot of embarrassment. 
And the embarrassment is what we do to encapsulate all this emotional constipation inside of ourselves because we don't want to take the risk of being abandoned again. We don't want to take the risk of being hurt again. Right. So it's better to be alone than it is to be hurt. It's better to be alone than it is to be hurt. I promise you that most people live their lives in positions, psychological positions, based on that initial trauma or those traumas that took place during childhood, adolescence, divorce, complications with the kids, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So it's better to it's better to be in that disconnection than it is to take that risk, because inside of ourselves, what we do is that we get into positions of having a lot of anger, right. and anger is re- expressed in usually one of uh, five ways. The first way is aggression. So working in adolescent psychiatry for ten years <laughs> is I saw a lot of kids who were super angry, yeah. and Nick was one of them. He was super angry. He walked me through all of that stuff, and uh, and. Uh, so Nick was the boy's name that that uh, I, the fictitious name um, that I gave him after the fact, but but he walked me through all of that stuff, and he was just saying and expressing to me that no one ever really connected to him. He didn't really know how to connect to others for them to understand his sadness mm-hmm. and loneliness and his pain. So he was lonely, but never alone. And I talked to people who are lonely. And always alone. Mm-hmm. And so these are two factors of reactions, if you will, based on not having that connection. Would you say those two are equal, though? Feeling lonely and being surrounded by people and feeling lonely and having no one? Like, in reality, do you think those are both equally isolating for a person? They, they sure can be. I, I, I know people who can go to a party and they don't feel like they know anybody. Mm-hmm. Or people who can have sex with people and they just still don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a psychological state of, of, of loneliness. loneliness and abandonment, rejection, mm-hmm. and anticipation that it's going to happen again. So it's better to be alone than it is to be hurt. So, and and they, people live their lives like that until they're dead. Mm-hmm. and they So they just continue that system, that process. Uh, and usually, so when people get that the um, em- frustration and to the point of embarrassment, is they are locking down and hunkering down in that emotional constipation based on that vulnerability, and then a lot of times they act out in anger, and that usually comes out with aggression. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, teenage boys are really good about being physically aggressive. So that's hitting walls, punching, you know, walls, uh, putting holes in walls. Uh, it could be yelling, screaming, hitting, blowing things up, all sorts of physical, verbal ways of saying, I'm angry, you know, and then if I... Do they often get in fights with other patients? Well, patients or, or school or parents Yeah, or okay, okay. So everywhere. aggression isn't just like inanimate things, it's also people. People, for sure. Show. Okay. Yeah, cops. <laughs> Seriously, I've known kids that go after Oof. cops. I've known yeah. kids... I, I worked in Fort Worth. There was drive-by shootings that happened rather frequently. Uh, and you think that's because of emotional constipation or it can be? Yeah, because those kids would come in the ER with right. bullet holes and they'd come into uh, inpatient psychiatry and I'd talk to them about it. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, so people are expressing pain uh, by being angry. And for men, boys, is that uh, the boys are terrified of being weak. So the best way not to be weak is to be powerful. Right. And so, and aggression um, is like the ultimate. And aggression power is the ultimate. And an adolescent's mind. Absolutely. Because yeah. uh, the last thing they can be is weak based on weak is shameful. Right. So, so we'll come back and talk about that. Um, What's the second form of anger? The, so, that's like aggression. The second part, another way of expressing oneself is being passive aggressive or stonewalling. Mm-hmm. And so, people build up these walls around uh, other people and they get 
the silent treatment for days, weeks, months, or years. Mm-hmm. So the story that I tell about that in my book was a guy that I knew was uh, when he was about eight years old. He, uh, his mom and dad had a fight, and his, um, and he was the oldest of five boys at eight. Wow! So there's a lot of kids under the age of eight, and um, his dad, both his dad parents were engineers so they're bright people both had master's degrees Mm -hmm. but they looked at each other and said i'm not going to talk to you ever again but we're only going to talk through our son for the next 10 years so i met him when he was 18 um and he was a an inpatient uh hospital Mm -hmm. at the time as a primary children's medical center in salt lake city and uh we allowed him to stay even though he was 18 um and he uh told me all about how his mom and dad would say, uh, tell your mom I want to have sex and tell your dad that the mortgage needs to get paid. Uh, tell your dad the lights are about to be turned off. Uh, tell your mom that to pass the pepper and the salt at dinner. So so they still live together. Yes. But would not communicate. Right. Except wow. through him. Mm-hmm. Except through him. And I found I... Uh, That's almost worse than them being divorced. I mean... At least there'd be an excuse. <coughs> Ooh, sorry. Bless you. Was that a cough or a sneeze? It's it's this half sneeze. And it's allergies. Oh. <laughs> so, so with him, uh, he was he was a tough kid because he had been in that role for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that ages you. Like it makes you mature quick if you have to talk about mature things as an eight year old. Well, what it does is create a, a massive amount of rage. Mm-hmm. And that rage uh, was expressed from him by a suicide plan that he made when he was about 15. Wow. He made a pact with himself that he would graduate uh, summa cum laude from his school mm-hmm. um, and that he was going to uh, commit suicide on that day. Oh, my and gosh. And so he, um, uh, that day came and he was first in his class and he was ready to give his speech and mom was super proud. So mom comes out of her bedroom and says, where's your dad? And he's sitting there tumbling, uh, kind of contemplating on the couch. And then he got up and went over to the gun cabinet, pulled out a shotgun, loaded it up, cocked it, and then went back and sat down on the couch. And she's like, well, put the gun away. We need to get going. We're waiting for your dad. And so he just sat there quietly contemplative, just nonchalant, uh, no big deal, uh, waiting for dad to come out. And dad came out of his bedroom and said, okay, put the gun away. We got to go do this speech. Let's get on with it. We're super proud of you, whatever. And and he said, you have three seconds to talk to each other or you're going to watch me blow my brains all over the ceiling. Oh, my gosh. And so they're like, what? What are you talking about? And he said, one. And they looked at each other and didn't say anything. Well, let's go. We got to get dad's getting mad. And mom's like, oh, what are we doing? And he said, two. Oh, my gosh. And finally, he, he said, okay, dad said, okay, what do you want me to say to her? He said, I, and he really get just unloaded on them for the next two hours about the massive abuse of their passive aggressive behavior mm-hmm. and what it had done to him. And how he went through the process of contemplating and really putting all that together. That gun was in the right place. He put it there. He loaded it. He knew how many. He knew exactly where the where the weapon yeah. was, where the bullets. It's like first degree suicide. Were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had it all planned out, because he figured that he was going to be dead. He knew he was going to be dead, because he knew his parents weren't going to talk to each other. 
Because no matter how many times he begged them over the 10-year period, or his siblings begged the parents over the 10-year period, they never talked to each other. They only talked through him. I just want to say... Um this is not an efficient way to get people to talk to each other. <laughs> this is not the right way to solve a problem. We are not glorifying that. There are many productive ways to get yourself into a situation where people are more communicative. Please don't threaten suicide. That is called emotional extortion. Please don't do that. It is emotional extortion, but this is, a, is an example of, right. of extreme passive-aggressive behavior. And we're going to get to how to communicate here in just a minute. Yeah. So we have aggressive, we have passive aggressive. Uh, what so that, happened? That's with, a, so that's a passive aggressive instance where he just was upset, and then all of a sudden it comes out. Is that what you? What, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the mom, is. the mom and dad were very passive aggressive and using him as a scapegoat to be able to express right through him. It was a very sick uh, dynamic that the parents created. Uh, Why were they staying together? Because they had kids or whatever. Because they had kids, religious reasons. There were, you know, wow. in Salt Lake City, it was religious issues. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they were staying with the kid and, you know, they had a business together or yeah. careers and whatever. Um, but they really hated each other. They hated each other. And the boy never really found out what the argument was about. Uh, and so ultimately he, he, he almost got to three and they argued and they fought uh, for the next couple of hours. And then the dad was able to coach the uh, gun away from him, called the police. The police came out, picked him up, brought him into primary children's. And he and I started talking about it. Uh, it was it was really an interesting deal because um, uh, no matter what he did to gain power with his parents is they didn't necessarily listen uh, until he took such extreme measures right and that was really damaging right to him yeah damaging emotionally um, I, I heard from him a few years later he he sent me an email um, thanking me for that intervention or how that all went down I knew him for probably six months in that time and uh, he told me that he got accepted uh, into a, a great school in Texas and, um, uh, and that he had uh, uh, let his mom and dad go. And that wow. he had really separated himself from them, uh, was in, in uh, treatment down there and uh, uh, moving ahead in his own career. So he, he really, but it was, it was a great thing that he called me up, or not called me, but he emailed me and told me that. Um, and I had a brief conversation with him uh, afterwards. So, but the, but the thing is, is that Passive-aggressive behavior does not work to communicate pain. Uh, so a lot of us will use that stonewall in our relationships. We'll stonewall uh, with our parents. We'll stonewall with our marriages. We'll stonewall all over the place. Um, and, and the thing is, it's really hurtful. Mm -hmm. Stonewalling is very hurtful. So To yourself. To yourself right. and also to, to your partner. Others, yeah. yeah. Uh, the next way of communication of that, of communicating pain is through passivity. And that is where people just don't feel strong enough to stand up for how they think, how they feel, how they believe. So this is different from passive aggression yeah. because though people who are passive aggressive feel like they can be aggressive, but they won't. And people who are passive don't have the aggression with them. They don't feel like they have the power. Okay. And so they will just take and take and take and take and take. And that creates this codependency. And that codependency is I have to sacrifice myself in order to make everybody else okay. Right. Okay. And so that... We'll talk more about codependency in another podcast, but but the thing is, is the the idea behind that is I don't have enough power to be able to stand up for how I think, how I feel, how I believe, and I will let anybody walk all over me because I don't matter. Mm -hmm. And that becomes an internal negative chatterbox that they are of complete total inadequacy, um, and so they give up their power to everybody else, mm -hmm. everybody else. And it usually comes from trauma, 
usually comes from some level of mental, emotional, physical, sexual abuse or something like that where they just completely were shredded from power. And so they buy into the idea that they will always be powerless. And so these people are sometimes very complicated because uh, it's hard to help them to believe they have power. Uh, and so we usually use other, use a lot of techniques on helping people have power. Um, and the next one is being very manipulative. And so what a lot of teenagers do is they're very manipulative. Mm -hmm. So they express their anger by having you focus on this while they take from you over here. So it's really about lying, uh, conniving, uh, mean, aggressive mm -hmm. behavior, yeah. and, and wanting to be manipulative as a way to be able to have that power. Because they just don't feel like they have any value yeah. to you, have that power. Do you have an example of a manipulative situation? Oh my goodness, how many do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I so, like when you give an example for each because it's very hands-on learning. Yeah, sure. So. Um, uh, well, I have I know of one right uh, person right now is a, a 15-year-old young man. Um, not not in my practice, just someone that I know. Mm -hmm. uh, he's actually a pretty great kid. You know, he's a 4.0 student. He's athletic. He's a good-looking kid. Um, but he likes to sneak his girlfriend into his uh, bedroom at nighttime. And um, and then he'll tell his parents, that didn't happen. I think you're delusional. I don't think that really happened. Mm -hmm. Oh, but we have you on video over here. We have a, with a video set up outside. No, no, Mom, that's really not true. That is not real. I think you really have a delusional mind. Wow, so, so like gaslighting kind of thing? Yeah. Mm. Well, not really, actually. Not a 15-year-old, but... It may be going towards just, that, just but it's lying. really about lying, mm -hmm. being overt, and really presenting one thing and meaning another, and it's really kind of this emotional game playing, and that can be turned into a narcissistic reaction mm -hmm. later on, and that is it narcissistic-ish, maybe, but, but the thing is, it's really about getting what one wants based on being able to say what one needs to say in order to be able to create the outcome they want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that, that young man, I always like to work with the, uh, manipulators because manipulators, uh, are always gamey and <laughs> I like to call them out on that game right? Yeah. and calling them out on that game as they'll come back and say, well, how come you can figure it out? Because uh, and other people can't, um, one, one kid at primary children said to me once, he said, man, you're, you're a really good manipulator. You get me to talk about all sorts of stuff I've never told anybody. And I said, I said, <laughs> what a compliment that's not really manipulation that's about connection i know yeah. how to connect with your pain and not being afraid of it so confronting you about your pain helps you to really get more truthful to yourself mm -hmm. and so he he had appreciation for that um but but the idea about manipulators is usually very bright people you know right. it takes a lot of horsepower to be able to be gamey and manipulative and they're really in pain they're people in pain mm -hmm. and so um and that sometimes in adulthood, manipulators can turn into more uh, higher status uh, mental health complications, compromise, uh, personality disorder compromise. Mm. sometimes never ends. Uh, so it's good to catch this while the kids are young. So if your kid is sneaking out of the house or lying or cheating or manipulating in some way, you know, give us a call. We can get these kids really pretty right. well straightened out. Yeah. Family therapy is required to come in and work with uh, us, with teenagers, um, that, and the reason why is because kids are gaming and manipulative and there's nothing better than playing what's called stump the chump <laughs> and the therapist <laughs> is the chump and the yeah. kid's job is to stump us and without having collaboration from moms and dads is that it's easy to get tricked so having that wrap around with mom and dad um, and working with the kid is that uh, they can't play that game with me 
Yeah. And so I always like to work with a strong oppositional defiant kid who's angry and belligerent and a manipulator. Uh, so, yeah, interesting. Yeah, those are fun for me. <laughs> and, and part of the reason why that is is that's what we used to see in inpatient all the time. So I've just had uh, lots of experience. thousands of kids I've seen in that yeah. situation. Yeah. So I kind of miss those kids. I don't see them as much anymore. Um, <laughs> and what's the fifth? So the fifth anger. one is, uh, nope, it's going to come down to assertiveness. Oh, no, I said anger because that's the this is the five oh, versions of anger, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Five, five versions of anger. So the, the best way to be able to handle things is to be assertive, and that is tell people how you truly think, feel, and believe, even though they may not like it. Mm-hmm. You know, even though they may not agree, um, and that, and, and having the wherewithal, the the belief inside of self that you're going to be okay uh, to dispute irrational thinking, to know that you have capable, you're capable, competent, and you're achieving, to be able to tell people how you think, feel, and believe, even though uh, sometimes they don't want to hear it, mm-hmm. and that is usually using I statements. I feel blank because of blank. And then, you know, the ideal is for people to be able to give some reflective listening, to be able to connect with how you're feeling about it, how you're thinking about it, what your beliefs are about it, not just feelings. It's easy to be able to say, I just want to focus on feelings, but focusing on feelings solely is not going to be adequate because there's a lot of other things that are tied that creates the emotion besides just how you feel. Feeling is just kind of a reaction. It's where it comes down to what your beliefs are that's Mm -hmm. creating the thoughts that's creating the feelings that's mm-hmm. creating the actions so we got to start connecting to how people believe right okay yeah so it's aggression passive aggression passivity manipulation, manipulation and assertiveness. assertiveness and the only healthy out of all five is assertiveness right okay but most human beings in southeast idaho the united states are not taught to be assertive right they're taught to be aggressive, passive, aggressive, passive, or, or manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus, the society we live in has a lot of complication because of that. Because in our relationships, it creates fear, trust, and safety, creates disconnection. It creates feelings of abandonment, rejection, guilt, mm-hmm. shame, frustration, and uh, embarrassment. And then we get into the uh, anger again. Right. And we cycle around in that. We mm-hmm. cycle around in that when we're kids and when we're adolescents. And what's interesting, we get into adolescence, we're looking for this attachment and connection and closeness with our friends and, and oftentimes don't feel like we have that um, or with our family we don't have that, is we start getting really anxious. Mm-hmm. So it starts to create neurochemical changes in our brains with um, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, adrenaline, endorphin. Uh, so kids start getting, that's where that anger comes from and that's where people start to get more anxious. And so anxiety and anxiety and people worry about you know, I'm never going to be right. I'm never going to be good enough. No one's ever going to love me. I can't, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good looking enough. I don't have enough friends. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not enough. No matter what I'm doing, I'm never enough. And so the people aren't sleeping very well. Mm-hmm. You know, they're worrying about things all day long. They have difficulty focusing, difficulty concentrating. They don't feel like they're going to be enough. And so what that's going to do is create more neurochemical changes in the brain that creates depression. Right. So depression, there's a road into depression. Emotional constipation is the road into depression. So people will say, well, how come I'm depressed? Well, mm, we talk about this. Usually by the time we get to this point, when I'm talking about with people are feeling emotional. Mm-hmm. They're feeling emotional because they're connecting to how they ended up in that depression. And depression is lack, loss of interest, not motivated by anything. Right. The symptoms of anxiety, worry, not mm-hmm. sleeping very well. So adolescents, they don't sleep well, 
and they are um, uh, feel helpless and hopeless. They don't mm-hmm. feel connected. They don't feel like they have anything. Uh, and then when people have, when kids are feeling that way, oftentimes, like with Nick when he got there, um, he started having suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And suicidal thoughts are common. Suicidal thoughts are common at adolescence and throughout the rest of life, especially mm-hmm. around big time stress. So suicidal thoughts, people think, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm having, I'm thinking about hurting myself. So they get shame based again. They start to really beat themselves up more about not being good enough. Right. And so, but suicidal thoughts are important that we look at because the suicidal thoughts aren't necessarily about our circumstance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I mean, they are about our circumstance, but they're also about how our neurochemistry is changing inside of our brain. We're not really aware of that, you know, mm-hmm. but this is where we're not sleeping very well. We lack loss of interest. We don't care about things. We have difficulty focusing and concentrating. Um, we just don't, you know, feel very good. We mm-hmm. don't feel icky a lot of the time. Um, and that, those are, that's really hard to live in that place. Right. And it, and a lot of times it goes on for days, weeks, months, and, you know, usually years where people are feeling that level of depression and they don't really have a word to describe it. You know, there's a lot of yeah. talk about depression these days. There's movies, there's all these kind of things, but when you're in the middle of it, you really don't really know sometimes. Yeah. And especially when your family doesn't talk about it, there's really not emotional mm-hmm. honesty, mm-hmm. assertion. In families, so a lot of times people just repress and hang on to that and constipate themselves with it. And then what happens next is a lot of times people start to feel uh, intense um, worthlessness, Mm -hmm. helplessness, hopelessness. And the shame just gets so strong because no matter what they do, you know, God's not fixing it. My family's not fixing it. Mm -hmm. It's not getting better. And so the shame of I'm too tall, too skinny, too short, too fat. I'm inadequate, I'm pathetic, I'm ridiculous, there's something inherently wrong with me, I'll mm-hmm. always be broken. Um, and that goes around and around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, people wake up at three o'clock in the morning and that's what they're thinking about. Uh, you know, there's no matter what I'm doing, I'm never going to be good enough. And so what, we live in this instant gratification world. And that instant gratification world is to find something on the outside of us to make us feel better on the inside. Yeah, right. And so most of us will start to engage in uh, addictive behaviors. Mm-hmm. addictive distracting self-soothing behaviors mm-hmm. self-soothing behaviors is the key here and a lot of times people want to judge that shame that and ridicule whatever that may be because some things are good on that self-soothing behaviors right and other things are evil and so we're going to judge you and throw you away which perpetuates that more so my list when i came up with this back in two in 1992 93 uh, working with all these kids in inpatient psych is I came up with the word sad, S-A-D. Mm-hmm. So when kids were going through all of this emotional constipation, they would come back with sad, with their acting out, and that was sex, alcohol, and drugs. Mm-hmm. So that was the easy thing. You know, this is before the Internet. Um, and then since the Internet, even the Internet in, in Texas, a lot of people weren't accessing porn. I, I went I went to back to Salt Lake City and worked at Primary Children's in 1995. And porn was really starting to becoming a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. The LDS Church was really in late late nineteen nineties, early two thousands, really promoting a lot of things about anti pornography, mm-hmm. and that's been really kind of the case ever since. Um, so porn became first. Porn, sexually acting out, because pornography and sexually acting out, in my belief, are two different things. Because mm-hmm. uh, sometimes with sexually acting out, you want to find multiple partners. 
Right. Uh, and that's not pornography. Even though in pornography, they may have multiple partners. Mm-hmm. But there's different psychological states with each of those things. Right. That we'll come back and talk about another day. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, pornography uh, or sexually acting out, um, alcohol and drugs create neurochemical changes in the brain. Mm-hmm. People are dopamine seeking. Dopamine is a feel-good neurochemical that helps us to feel better. So yeah. it makes sense when people are feeling a lot of anger, anxiety, and depression is if they use uh, pornography, sexually acting out, alcohol, and drugs as they feel better. Duh! I mean... <laughs> yeah. So people want to judge this stuff, shame this stuff, ridicule, cast people out. But the bottom line is that you're dealing with the suffering. Mm-hmm. The suffering, not shaming people and throwing them away because they're doing these things. They're trying to find a way to feel better from feeling bad. Mm-hmm. So pornography, sexually acting out, alcohol, and drugs are usually the first four that I see. Uh, with adolescents, young adults, and all the way to the end, you know, whether it's hydrocodone right. or, you know, benzos or whatever for adults, but for sometimes for kids, porn is easy, right? So right. it just kind of depends. Other ways that people hurt themselves, um, I throw music in there, and people will come back and say, well, how is music self-harm? How can that be self-soothing? Well, you know, I was a drummer for 30 years. So <laughs> I know people don't understand that, but mm-hmm. it's like, you don't look like a drummer. I'm like, well, I like, like a lot of things, <laughs> but I've done a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, so, But I played drums from when I was 10 until I was 40, mm-hmm. and I gave them up. Um, I had an acoustic set. I had a electric set. I had all this equipment, all this stuff. And I gave it up because I was going deaf. Um, wow. My, my thing is the who and, you know, <laughs> uh, Led Zeppelin and, and hard rock bands. And, you know, I, 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 I thrive off that stuff um, because that's what I was raised with. And right. that's what I had. My dad was a concert pianist and my brother played the guitar. So I picked wow. up the drums and, you know, my dad, he tolerated it. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, so it, it was kind of funny. But yeah, yeah, so I played the drums all those years, and then I started going deaf. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little deaf, probably twenty percent deaf on my right ear versus my left. Wow. Um, and so I, I had to give that up, and and but it was uh, a great way to change state. When I was a teenager, felt depressed or anxious or upset. If I played the drums for five, six hours, got together with my buddies, we play some music in college, play some music. It was a great time, and it would change my state. And so I really got addicted to that feeling right. of changing state in that way. So, But it was self-harm because I would come back from a concert or playing for a long time. Uh, and if it wasn't the latter, the better, at least in college years, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, if my ears weren't ringing, it wasn't loud enough. And at the time, I was like, wow. oh, well, I'll die by the time I'm 40 anyway. So right? <laughs> who thinks you're going to live when you're young? You don't yeah. think that 40 is like forever. Yeah. You know? So, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't think I was going to live that long. Right. Uh, so anyway. So you weren't going to have to deal with the gonna consequences. going to have to deal with the consequences. Yeah. yeah. I'm 56 now, yeah. so apparently I survived you were wrong. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's irrational childhood thinking mm-hmm. there. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so, but music is a, is a big thing. And so... Uh, and then uh, having a very deep bass, you know, was always a big thing. So I have a subwoofer all over the place. My car, my house, everywhere I go, my office. I've had, you know, I used to have an electric guitar in my office about 10 years ago. Wow. Uh, you know, all these things. But these things were ways for me to identify who I am, but also identify back to the music that I really enjoyed. It was a really an escape from having to feel. Mm-hmm. And, and it works. It works. I know lots of kids 
that use music as a way to escape from feeling. Right. Uh, another way of, of managing mood is eating disorders. Um, and mm-hmm. this is a great way to change dopamine and also norepinephrine, serotonin, endorphin. They're all the same neurochemicals, essentially, to, to change state. Again, so sometimes it's going to come down to uh, being anorexic. You know, so anorexics right. people won't, why, why do you want to starve yourself? Well, if you're really suffering from a lot of pain from external control from your mom and your dad and everywhere else you go mm-hmm. and never really feel like you're ever going to be good enough and everything comes down to external beauty that's measured by an outside source that's unrealistic and a distorted body image um, and usually happens for adolescents. I've seen it as young as uh, probably nine wow. in the primaries and, and you know, on average the kid for eating disorders probably 15 or 16 there, yeah. uh, almost always girls. Uh, I'd say 95% of the time anyway. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times uh, those kids just, just completely don't feel like they have any value unless they're their ideal body weight. Right. So I knew a young lady there who was 16 and she was probably about five foot nine and she came in at a ripe weight of about 80 pounds. Oh my gosh. And so that was tough. That was tough. She was right. just skin and bones and we had to tube her and give her insure. Um, she'd always pull the tube out, and it was always this battle of control. Uh, but the bottom line in her family system is that she was completely inadequate if she wasn't skinny. Her mom was skinny, so her mom would engage in power struggles with her and fight with her about who was skinnier. Wow. So her mom was an anorexic. She became an anorexic, and this was complicated. Uh, we did help her to get to a better place, um, helped her mom get to a better place, uh, and so she was able to get out of treatment, but... Uh, we weren't too sure how that was going to work out. Yeah. So the thing is, is that uh, anorexia is a very specific thing. Um, so we do deal with the eating disorders in our practice uh, frequently and re-deals with them, uh, with, with people with eating disorder quite a bit. He's extensively trained in yes. this. So another, another eating disorder is uh, bulimia. Mm-hmm. So again, a lot of times uh, when we are feeling emotional, we feel emotionally activated using our stomach, our chest, and our throat. And the reason why is because long-term pain and suffering of childhood abuse, we talked about in the beginning, is held in the gut. So we emotionally constipate and we push that pain down into our gut because we don't want to feel it anywhere else. And if it goes to our gut, then magically it disappears. But it comes out sideways. So it comes out in the eating disorders. It comes out in these other ways I was just talking about. So the thing is that is when people are bulimic and they'll, they'll eat food and then they'll throw it back up is it kind of moves your guts around. It moves your esophagus, it moves your stomach, mm-hmm. and it takes that feeling away for about 10 minutes. And then it comes back. Right. Because, but it, the thing is, so people get into this habit of overeating, you know, binging and overeating and too much, and then they purge as a way to express, mm-hmm. and then they overeat and purge and overeat and purge. And there's other ways of doing it. Some people use suppositories. Some people do, you know, other, other things uh, mm-hmm. to be able to create them to vomit. Uh, besides putting their finger down the throat or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it really comes down to this control and this misery, and I'm not, not going to be good enough uh, based on all the complications of life. So taking a position of control by uh, anorexia and bulimia. Another way of doing it, oh, you have to come Oh, I was just going to say another um, coping mechanism within eating disorders is not necessarily, I don't know if it's considered an eating disorder, you'll have to tell mm-hmm. me, but a lot of people have just a negative relationship with food. Mm-hmm. And in order to cope, they eat. They eat good food. They eat bad food, usually junk food. They'll just keep eating because it makes them feel better than right. before. 
it's a it's a great distraction mm-hmm. from suffering. Right. And it might not be binging or purging or not eating at all. It could right. just be you know, when you come home from a long day and they're like, I just want to eat a whole bag of Cheetos. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's not necessarily like that much food. It's just a distraction from what it's you're feeling. Boredom and that, that type of distraction mm-hmm. uh, and, and avoidance. Because a lot of times we don't have a lot of things to do that keeps us preoccupied. Um, so so uh, another way of handling um, emotional suffering is overeating. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same type of thing that you were just describing. Right. Boredom, disconnection. Uh, loneliness, sadness. So if I suck down, you know, a big thing of Ben and Jerry's, I'm going to feel better. And mm-hmm. adding all that sugar, uh, increasing your uh, insulin, that changes your dopamine. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a bit of a dopamine high from it. Um, but then you're going to feel sick and disgusting and nasty afterwards. And, you know, some people will, will purge it. Other people will just sit on it and they'll go get another one. So it's easy to become obese because there's always food around us. There's always fast food restaurants around right. us we don't have to necessarily eat the best foods all the time yeah convenience has really made it easy for people with binge eating disorders. yes yeah <laughs> that's for sure uh so it's easy to do and it's it's become even more socially acceptable to be heavy um and so we have we have lots of people right. with chronic obesity which we're not down talking body positivity so please don't take it that way it's not about that it's not yeah it's not about that i see it as suffering again i mm-hmm. see it as self-soothing suffering mm-hmm. and dealing with loneliness um and that chronic depression helplessness hopelessness worthlessness and so that's a negative chatterbox uh coping mechanism mm-hmm. uh, and other people use controlled eating so they'll only eat certain foods or they'll they'll kind of skirt around their plate a little bit or people will hide food or people will hoard food uh, I knew a kid at Primary Children's, and he uh, he was 16, and he was a great kid, but he was raised in a neglectful home, and uh, child protection took him away, and when he came into primaries, he was really uh, pretty uh, uh, pretty complicated kid, and, and we kept on finding food was missing, and we would find, you know, uh, staff would go in and find wrappers in his room or whatever. Uh, so uh, the psychiatrist is just a great guy, and he said, you know, this kid has been deprived of food. So what we did is they brought pallets of food into his room, oh my God. literally pallets of juices and sandwiches on a daily, and he didn't get fat from it. He just was able to see that the world is enough, that he right, is Right, that it enough. was just his circumstance. Yes, and mm-hmm. he was enough, and it really worked rather well. I wouldn't recommend that always. You need to make sure we're dealing with a professional, and mm-hmm. that's not always the best solution for those circumstances, but it worked well for this boy. Yeah. Uh, and he was able to start to recognize that he was capable of monitoring his uh, food intake and that he was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, eating disorders are a significant way that we, we try and hide from our pain. Um, other ways of doing it is, uh, is self-mutilation, you know, cutting and burning uh, because why do, why do kids do that? Why do people do that? Well, you know, it's it's a dopamine hit. It's an endorphin hit. Um, and and so if, if you're really suffering and in pain, you mm-hmm. want that pain out of you, uh, kids will find a way to cut on themselves. Usually if they're right-handed, they cut on their left arm or they'll cut on their upper leg or something um, in a place that no one can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some girls in Texas, they cut under the bra lines. You know, they would cut on the panty lines. 
because uh, they they want to be able to go outside and you know and no one would know no one would know and that's a that's a common misconception that most people cut for attention that's not true because a lot of people who cut hide it they don't want people to see it's just a way for them to distract themselves yeah and if they cut on their panty line or cut on their bra line or they're walking around the street they can feel that cut they can feel that pain right and that keeps them distracted from remembering what they're avoiding mm-hmm. you know it keeps them distracted from feeling the sadness hurt and pain of the agony that they whatever happened to them mm-hmm. or how they perceive themselves and it works it right. works and so uh another way of doing that is burning uh another way of doing that is uh is branding and some mm-hmm. people will say um uh you know sometimes it's piercing sometimes it's tattooing and sometimes and so i've, I've had a lot of people push back well you don't get tattoos there's a way to self-harm okay but i have known people who've done it and people will come back and say, well, I, I don't get body piercings way self-harm. Okay, but I know people have done that. Well, and some people do the stick and poke themselves as well as the tattoos yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So. Or they'll poke themselves, uh, you know, uh, they'll pierce themselves right. in, in areas of their body, their sexual parts, for example, uh, by themselves. And uh, so it's not nothing, nothing sanitary and they get infected or something like mm-hmm. that. And they want that. They want that distraction that constant pain that distraction Mm -hmm. to keep themselves psychologically away from the things that suffering them the most Mm -hmm. so uh, another way of doing it is uh, cheating lying um, perfectionism trying to be perfect for everyone all the time that was Mm -hmm. one of Nick's things he just always tried to be perfect for everyone he never used sex drugs or alcohol he wasn't into porn Um, but he he found ways of of self-harming by uh, trying to be perfect to everybody. Right. And that psychologically ended up uh, putting him in the position of what happened. Uh, he and I talked for about three months. Um, and uh, he has had overdosed on medications that wiped out his kidneys and his liver and impacted his heart and his brain. Um, and back then, what happened... This is Nick again? Nick, okay, yeah. Sorry, finishing up that story. So finishing up that story is that he... he uh, uh, came in at about 225 pounds, and by the time his uh, three months into it, he he dropped about 100 pounds. He was just skin and bone. And wow. at that time, you weren't eligible for uh, a kidney transplant. It was what he needed because it would be about a half million dollars wow. out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And parents didn't have it. The hospital didn't want to do it because he was at risk of hurting himself again because right. he tried it first time. So the, the kidney transplants in the early 90s are pretty rare. And expensive, so he wasn't eligible. So his uh, dad, uh, he didn't want to be on dialysis the rest of his life. Um, and he had other physiological complications, compromise. And so uh, his dad held him in the fetal position in his room as he passed away. Oh, my uh, gosh. His, at that time, the nurses were there, the doctor was there, his mom and dad and family were there. So he needed a kidney transplant? He needed a kidney and liver Oh, so, so he Both. would have died even if he got a kidney transplant? He, he probably would have survived. He probably would have had to be on dialysis. Okay, I'll take this out, but why did his parents not give? Can't you can't you give one of your kidneys away? The, the hospital wouldn't do it because it would be half a million dollars, and he was at Oh, risk. so the procedure, not the organ. Just the procedure was $500,000. Yes. Oh, okay, I didn't know and that. And the uh, risk was too high. There are other people who would not try to commit suicide. The doctors did that not want to do it. Uh, based on that suicide risk that he would do it again. I don't like that. Uh, welcome to reality. Yeah, that's awful. 1990s. I mean, <laughs> now we have better procedures. 
Oh, so that's not, they don't do that anymore. No, no. Oh, good. Oh my gosh. No, not to my awareness anyway. Okay. I think that, that, that had been changed by now, but at least I hope so. Oh, sorry. So he was holding him. So dad, dad was holding him in the fetal position because the dad really had to become humbled because in family therapy, we really got into how dad was too much, too pressure, too over the top uh, perfectionism within his Christian belief system, within academics, within you know, uh, behavioral expectations that, that Nick never felt like he was ever good enough. He was never good enough for what his dad wanted. And that was then perceived that what God wanted of him, mm-hmm. you know, about what other people wanted. Um, and so that was a really sad thing. And his mom was able to get stronger and being able to assert herself about her pain with the father. And the father was able to come back and apologize. And uh, we were able to make a lot of progress with him, but it was too late. It was right. too late to be able to save Nick, um, and that, that was a legacy that was going to live with that family forever because um, he was a great kid. He was a great kid. I, I got close to him, and he was just a great kid. Um, but he, he died based on emotional constipation. He did not know what to do. He didn't have schools. He didn't have, he didn't have skills, and he did not have people who were listening. And it really comes down to listening uh, to what people are doing, and that's something that we really do work hard at and practice is to listen and connect to how people are thinking and how they're feeling, how they're believing in order for them to be relieved of their suffering. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, is that distraction behavior does not work. It only works for a short amount of time. And, and usually it's like with cutting, how long does that effect last? Right. You know, about a second and a half to three seconds. Right. Or social media. I know that a lot of people use that as a coping mechanism. Social media. And the likes make you feel good. But how long does that last? It gives you a dopamine hit for how long? Right. Five seconds, maybe right. 10, 15. Mm-hmm. So we're going from, you know, from cutting to social media, uh, distraction from a, maybe a, a one and a half seconds, three seconds, maybe up to five days, you know. So right. sometimes with drug addiction, first time methamphetamine use, you're going to get a dopamine high. It's going to last for five days. You're never going to have that high ever again. Right. And you've burned up a piece of your brain that can never be repaired. Right. Uh, and it's the same with other types of distracting behaviors. So we use the distraction to feel good for a few seconds or, or longer, and then we go back to depression. And then we use it again, and then we go back to depression. We use it again, we go back to depression. And this becomes a habit. It becomes a cycle of, of avoidance of our pain and then getting back in our pain. And most people live their lives forever like that. They'll, so they'll cycle around from that, Fear, trust, safety, hurt, set the disconnect, hurt, fear, trust, safety, disconnection, hurt, sadness, loss, grief, feeling abandoned, feeling rejected, feeling guilt, shame, um, uh, frustration, embarrassment that creates anger reactions of aggression, passive aggressiveness, passivity, manipulation, never learning how to assert oneself, engaging in more deeper psychological turmoil neurochemical changes in the brain that creates Mm -hmm. anxiety, that drives depression, suicidal ideations, self-loathing behavior, and addictions. So most people live their lives in that cycle. They're going around and around and around, and they never know how to get out. Yeah, They never know how to get out. People who go into inpatient psychiatry, they have intent on how to kill themselves. They're trying to figure out a way to get out of suffering. Right. And so by learning, by, by, hurting themselves, ending up in the emergency room by trying to commit suicide. Is some people are successful with that. 
Some people end up in um, going to a nursing home. I've known a lot of kids who hurt themselves to the point they had to be in a nursing home at 16, at 14, because their bodies weren't damaged enough to die, but they were not healthy enough to live right. and go back to their normal mm-hmm. life. We cannot always put Humpty Dumpty back together again. People will say, well, live in 2020. Can't we fix it? No, we right. can't fix it uh, because we have brain damage. Uh, or we have people Liv- get, or kidney or liver damage, like Nick. kidney liver damage, or people do car accidents. I mean, they'll do things as a way to right. escape from having to feel. So they end up, you know, I knew a kid that, you know, he broke his girlfriend, broke up with him. And he felt really bad, and so he ran his car doing about a hundred miles an hour and hit a jump. Essentially, the car spun in the middle of the air and hit a, a telephone pole sideways. Oh my! While gosh. the car got wrapped around the uh, telephone pole, and the boy ended up with a traumatic brain injury. He was 16. Oh, my gosh. And then he died when he was about 37. It's a boy that I knew in high school. So he lived years after that. In a nursing 21 home. 21 years after. In a nursing, in a nursing home. home. Yep. Yep. So not everybody's in a nursing home is old. A lot of people who end right. up in nursing homes have tried to commit suicide, and there's really no place else for them to go. Right. Or they'll stay at home. You know, they have other physiological uh um, brain compl- compromise, and so sometimes they have to stay at home with their parents, or they have to go to a facility, mm-hmm. um, and we have long-term suffering, and suffering really never ends. But it doesn't, these things happen because of this emotional constipation based on disconnection. They don't believe that there's someone there going to be loving them, taking care of them. They're, they're buying into their fear, trust, and safety issues where they live in this disconnection place. Mm-hmm. And so the idea for therapy, in my belief, is to be able to help people out of suffering and to come up with skills and ways to be able to cope with their lives as opposed to continue caving in to the beliefs that there's no one who cares. And usually when I tell this to people, um, kids or adults, who I like a kid who's uh, recently came in to see me, uh, 16 years old and very angry and belligerent and um, shut down, very passive-aggressive with their parents. Uh, and he's not a client right now, though, right? Not a client okay. right now. Uh, and, and this kid um, refused to talk. I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to say anything. And so I just told him this. And halfway through, you know, I'm talking about worthlessness, helplessness, hopelessness. He starts crying. Mm-hmm. He's crying mm-hmm. because he's connecting to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And that isn't because I'm better than him. It's really because Nick taught me a lot of this stuff. And I, I've never let it go. And that is about connecting with people in order for them to stop suffering. Right. And if they can have that better relationship inside themselves, have a better connection to their parents, have a better connection to their loved ones, as they graduate from therapy, and they oftentimes don't come back. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we work with a psychiatrist or a doctor to be able to help with the uh, uh, medications that will increase their, uh, you know, change their um, Dopamine, serotonin. serotonin. Yeah. yeah, so sometimes it's going to be a Prozac, sometimes it's going to be other types of medications like that. Uh, to be able to help them to hold them up. So basically those medications are really important when people are depressed. And it becomes like a cast. It's like a cast around a bone. So their emotions are really upset. And as their emotions get more more under control and their beliefs start to change, they start to realize they have more capacity, uh, the medications keep everything intact. It keeps everything together. And so I really encourage people to get on medications and get medications from a well-qualified psychiatrist child, adolescent psychiatrist, adult psychiatrist. If one's not available, do we find a medical doctor in the, in the area that has uh, training mm-hmm. in mental health and understands how to do um, 
how to do medications. So that's really an important piece a lot of times with helping people recover from anger, anxiety, and depression, especially when it comes down to suicidality. It keeps people out of the ER. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I also think on medications for teenagers, they need to be managed by parents, put into a lockbox. Kids get you know two or three days at a time. Right. All other medications are locked up. You know, over the counters, heart drugs, mom and dad's drugs, grandpa and grandma drugs, whatever. You know, sometimes the alcohol uh, cabinet needs to be locked up or alcohol needs to be put away. Sometimes we need to remove drug, uh, uh, guns, um, knives uh, need to be removed, ammunition needs, needs to be moved or locked up mm-hmm. uh, because kids will do things. You know, sometimes kids will, if they want to hurt themselves, they're going to find a way. And usually they hurt themselves at three o'clock in the afternoon or three o'clock in the morning. Right. Uh, times when they just feel like they're they're worthless mm-hmm. and nothing's making it better. So, so um, the the goal for therapy is learning how to face our fear and learning how to have a relationship with uh, at least a therapist in order to be able to help get to a better place. And so that's a lot of times it's hard to get into therapy. It's hard to to make that jump because some people have seen five. 15 different therapists right and some therapists don't know these things it's not because they're bad people it's been training or maybe interest or whatever mm-hmm. life experience life experience mm-hmm. and they may not know how to connect with people mm-hmm. and something that we do at uh, Christopher L. Walton Associates is we I really teach the staff on how to do that and I know how to do that myself in order to be able to help people find a safe place mm-hmm. to be able to come in talk about things come up with new skills, come up with new training, learning how to change irrational thinking, learning how to be strong and empowered. So I do a lot of a, uh, female empowerment training. Mm-hmm. Um, I do other types of training to, to be able to help people to feel good about themselves and that they can survive the complexities of their lives. Mm-hmm. Where So they walk away feeling good because they know that I can connect and help them uh, with that. Um, and so that's, that's an important piece. And so if, if, again, if people are thinking, contemplating coming into therapy, now's the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Now's the time to do it because we can help you out. Um, we have the, the technical skills, the uh, resources within uh, the scope of doctors or psychiatrists. Um, we are, uh, I believe, skilled people in order to be able to help people to get to a better place. Mm-hmm. No, There were things I wanted to say, but... You kind of covered them as you went, so <laughs> so I don't. I, yeah, I don't think I have any. Well, the, the, I could talk about how people end up in the emergency room and hospital. Um, um, sometimes when people have, they they've lived this emotional constipation from uh, fear, trust, and safety down to uh, self-soothing behaviors with addictions. Um, and that doesn't necessarily get better as they really have more um, intensified depression and anxiety mm-hmm. that's a lot of times neurochemical and also behavioral. Uh, and it's life is getting worse. Right. Suicidality becomes worse. Intense Intensity of the depression gets worse. Right. I will say um, sometimes suicidal ideation includes when you think about dying and it feels good to think about that. Or yes. you feel joy in thinking about your life being over. Not necessarily that you want to be the one to do it, but you think about somebody else hitting you with their car and you die or you getting mugged and they shoot you or whatever. And those things give you joy to feel. Um, 
So it's important to monitor that as well. That is, I, I would say, probably the first step of suicidal plans is yeah. feeling that. It's usually a suicidal ideation right. that then when people are having the thoughts of, of the joy of the happiness of the relief, mm-hmm. people you know uh, have that at that point. This is more intensified suicidal plans when people are kind of they start to write a note and they will give their stuff away. And they feel really depressed for a long period of time and it's observed by other people. And then all of a sudden they feel happy right. and they feel Hey, everything's great mm-hmm. because they plan That's on... a really bad sign of of their them having a plan for a quote solution Correct. to their problems. It's an end date. Mm-hmm. It's an end date of their pain mm-hmm. that gets into a place of relief in their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's these are dangerous places when people get into the intensified suicidal plans mm-hmm. um, that are uh, are scary and most people don't know about it. Uh, their loved ones don't know about it. Uh, sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll leave a letter or um, maybe make a note if, uh, if they want someone to know about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've known people that don't leave any, any note. Uh, they, wanna, they want to get back at the people who really hurt them the most. And so the best way to do that is to say it's your fault and then they hurt themselves, right? So they come up with some scheme of, of suffering mm-hmm. I've, I've known other people especially kids that they they uh, believe there's an afterlife and they're going to be there to see how many people show up at their funeral and so they really fantasize about who's going to show up at their funeral mm-hmm. and there's a lot of thought and uh, that's put into that uh, belief and and what what that's going to look like so people are starting to, in that intensified place it's a scary time and we need to be checking in with people most people at this time aren't ready to talk about it. But mm-hmm. the people who create, you know, they don't feel like they have that trust or safety, so they don't say anything. And so people will, will do things to hurt themselves. A lot of times girls will overdose. Um, overdose is the easiest thing, easy, quickest access. Uh, you know, sometimes... It's passive as well. It's like, it's not passive. That's not the right word. The right word is it's not personal. When you take a bunch of pills, it's kind of in your mind separate from shooting yourself or hanging yourself or, you know, jumping off a bridge. Those things are more like personal and like you're, you're personal with death. You're making a statement. Right. 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 Boys have a tendency to make statements Mm -hmm. with all those things, Mm -hmm. cars, guns, hanging. Uh, whereas girls, a lot of times will do take more of that passive approach because they, you know, they don't want you to see that they're bled out or something like that. So I have, I have, but although I have known people that have, you know, um, shot themselves or I knew a young lady that, uh, cut herself, uh, very profusely and died from that, wow. uh, that she wanted to make a statement for her mother. Uh, so, cause she had such rage with her mother. Um, you know, that's just a bad, bad deal. Mm-hmm. But most of the time girls will want to try and overdose, uh, as a way to escape that pain. And, and a lot of times they're successful and, in Southeast Idaho, in Idaho in general, I mean, we're ranked number three in the United States for suicide. Wow, I did not know number that. Number three, yeah. Wow. At least that's what it was a couple of years ago. I'm not sure what it is with COVID right now. It's probably increased mm-hmm. for suicide. But a lot of that is adolescent uh, suicide. So a lot of high schools are putting a lot of pressure on, on a lot of more education, and they're trying to do more about it. There's a lot of great uh, community involvement uh, to be able to help people out. Um, but, but a, a lot of times people really need to get into therapy to be able to work on those issues. Parents have to come in, you know, working with teenagers and suicide. Parents just have to be there to be able to start working and modifying 
them, them because it's a family problem. You know, a lot of times parents want to drop their kid off at the therapist's office and say, fix my kid. Well, part of the problem is mom and dad. I mean, right, yeah. you know, mom and dad, it's not about mom and dad being bad. Mom and dad need to figure out another way of doing things and uh, communicating, connecting with the kid. And well, and a lot of happens, times the family works. needs healing as well. Like the parents do need healing if they're, yeah. if they have a suicidal kid, like that's hard. Oh, it's, it's super stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Super. And stressful. it doesn't have to always in the healing process. It doesn't have to be just about the suicidal adolescent. It's about the healing of the family as well, you know, yeah. together, healing together. Yeah. And, and a lot of times when, when parents have one kid who is suicidal or has a lot of mental health complications is the siblings get ditched. You know, that's happened all the time when I was working inpatients with there's a 911 you know a kid came in er the whole ball of wax and there's two or three other kids who are getting left alone at home because the mom and dad are doing family therapy they're coming and seeing a psychiatrist they're trying mm-hmm. to make sure the kids alive they're working with the insurance companies going to work doing all these things and, and we have all these other kids who get neglected and and then they we have compromise with them too right so it's we've got to keep that family system process going and keeping people in the family treatment in order to be able to create the best outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you or anyone in your family or anyone you love um, is experiencing any of these feelings that we've talked about today and needs help, um, please call 208-403-0135 for a, to schedule a free one-hour consultation or visit us online at eastidahotherapy.com. And, or, and... If you or someone you know wants to achieve more peace, joy, and happiness in their life, go to navigatingyourmind.com and buy Chris's book, Navigating Your Mind, Peace, Joy, and Happiness. Yep, Navigating Your Mind, Achieving Life, Peace, Joy, and Happiness. Mm-hmm. So that's also available on Kindle, uh, Amazon, so you get on an ebook or hard copy. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>